0: chapter 43 of the custom of the country this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by elizabeth cleat the custom of the country by edith wharton chapter 43 she watched him go in a kind of stupor knowing that when they next met he would be as courteous and self-possessed as if nothing had happened but that everything would nevertheless go on in the same way—in HIS way—and that there was no more hope of shaking his resolve or altering his point of view than there would have been of transporting the deep-rooted masonry of Saint-Désert by means of the wheeled supports on which apex architecture performed its easy transits. One of her childish rages possessed her, sweeping away every feeling save the primitive impulse to hurt and destroy. But search as she would she could not find a crack in the strong armour of her husband's habits and prejudices. For a long time she continued to sit where he had left her, staring at the portraits on the walls as though they had joined hands to imprison her. Hitherto she had almost always felt herself a match for circumstances, but now the very dead were leagued to feed her people she had never seen and whose names she couldn't even remember seemed to be plotting and contriving against her under the escutcheoned gravestones of saint Desert. Her eyes turned to the old warm-toned furniture beneath the pictures, and to her own idle image in the mirror above the mantelpiece. Even in that one small room there were enough things of price to buy a release from her most pressing cares. And the great house, in which the room was a mere cell, and the other, greater house in Burgundy held treasures to deplete even such a purse as Moffat's. She liked to see such things about her. Without any real sense of their meaning she felt them to be the appropriate setting of a pretty woman, to embody something of the rareness and distinction she had always considered she possessed, and she reflected that if she had still been Moffat's wife, he would have given her just such a setting, and the power to live in it as became her. The thought sent her memory flying back to things she had turned it from for years. For the first time since their far-off weeks together she let herself relive the brief adventure. She had been drawn to Elmer Moffatt from the first, from the day when Ben Frusk, Indiana's brother, had brought him to a church picnic at Mulvey's Grove, and he had taken instant possession of Undine, sitting in the big stage beside her on the ride to the grove, supplanting Millard Bench, to whom she was still, though intermittently and incompletely, engaged, swinging her between the trees, rowing her on the lake, catching and kissing her in forfeits, awarding her the first prize in the beauty-show he hilariously organized and gallantly carried out, and finally—no one knew how—contriving to borrow a buggy and a fast colt from old Mulvey, and driving off with her at a two-forty gate while Millard and the others took their dust in the crawling stage. No one in Apex knew where young Moffat had come from, and he offered no information on the subject. He simply appeared one day behind the counter in Luckaback's dollar shoe store, drifted thence to the office of Semple and Binch, the coal merchants, reappeared as the stenographer of the police court, and finally edged his way into the power-house of the Apex water-works. He boarded with old Mrs. Flynn, down in North Fifth Street, on the edge of the red-light slum. He never went to church or attended lectures, or showed any desire to improve or refine himself. But he managed to get himself invited to all the picnics and lodge sociables, and at a supper of the Phi Upsilon Society, to which he had contrived to affiliate himself, he made the best speech that had been heard there since young Jim Rolliver's first flights. The brothers of Undine's friends all pronounced him great, though he had fits of uncouthness that made the young women slower in admitting him to favour. But at the Mulvey's Grove picnic he suddenly seemed to dominate them all and undine as she drove away with him tasted the public triumph which was necessary to her personal enjoyment after that he became a leading figure in the youthful world of apex and no one was surprised when the sons of jonadab the local temperance society invited him to deliver their fourth of july oration the ceremony took place as usual in the baptist church and undine all in white with a red rose in her breast sat just beneath the platform with indiana jealously glaring at her from a less privileged seat and poor millard's long neck craning over the row of prominent citizens behind the orator Elmer Moffat had been magnificent, rolling out his alternating effects of humour and pathos, stirring his audience by moving references to the blue and the grey, convulsing them by a new version of Washington and the cherry-tree, in which the infant patriot was depicted as having cut down the tree to check the deleterious spread of cherry-bounce, dazzling them by his erudite allusions and apt quotations he confessed to Undine that he had sat up half the night over Bartlett and winding up with a peroration that drew tears from the grand army pensioners in the front row, and caused the minister's wife to say that many a sermon from that platform had been less uplifting. An ice-cream supper always followed the exercises, and as repairs were being made in the church basement, which was the usual scene of the festivity, the minister had offered the use of his house. The long table ran through the doorway between parlour and study, and another was set in the passage outside, with one end under the stairs. The stair rail was wreathed in fireweed and early goldenrod, and temperance texts in smilax decked the walls. When the first course had been despatched, the young ladies, gallantly seconded by the younger of the sons, helped to ladle out and carry in the ice-cream, which stood in great pails on the larder floor, and to replenish the jugs of lemonade and coffee. Elmer Moffat was indefatigable in performing these services, and when the minister's wife pressed him to sit down and take a mouthful himself, he modestly declined the place reserved for him among the dignitaries of the evening, and withdrew with a few chosen spirits to the dim table-end beneath the stairs. Explosions of hilarity came from this corner with increasing frequency, and now and then tumultuous rappings and howls of, "'Song! Song!' followed by adjurations to, "'Cough it up!' and, "'Let her go!' drowned the conversational efforts at the other table. At length the noise subsided and the group was ceasing to attract attention, when toward the end of the evening, the upper table, drooping under the lengthy elucibrations of the minister and the president of the temperance society, called on the orator of the day for a few remarks. There was an interval of scuffling and laughter beneath the stairs, and then the minister's lifted hand enjoined silence, and Elmer Moffatt got to his feet. "'Step out where the ladies can hear you better, Mr. Moffatt," the minister called. Moffatt did so, steadying himself against the table, and twisting his head about as if his collar had grown too tight. But if his bearing was vacillating, his smile was unabashed, and there was no lack of confidence in the glance he threw at Undine Sprague as he began. "'Ladies and gentlemen, if there's one thing I like better than another about getting drunk—and I like most everything about it except the next morning—' It's the opportunity you've given me of doing it right here, in the presence of this society, which, as I gather from its literature, knows more about the subject than anybody else. Ladies and gentlemen—he straightened himself, and the tablecloth slid toward him—ever since you honored me with an invitation to address you from the temperance platform, I've been assiduously studying that literature. And I've gathered from your own evidence—what I had strongly suspected before—that all your converted drunkards had a hell of a good time before you got at em, and that— that a good many of em have gone on having it since." At this point he broke off, swept the audience with his confident smile, and then, collapsing, tried to sit down on a chair that didn't happen to be there, and disappeared among his agitated supporters. There was a nightmare moment during which Undine, through the doorway, saw Ben Frusk and the others close about the fallen orator to the crash of crockery and tumbling chairs. Then some one jumped up and shut the parlor door, and a long-necked Sunday-school teacher, who had been nervously waiting his chance, and had almost given it up, rose from his feet and recited High Tide at Gettysburg, amid hysterical applause. The scandal was considerable. But Moffatt, though he vanished from the social horizon, managed to keep his place in the power-house, till he went off for a week and turned up again without being able to give a satisfactory reason for his absence. After that he drifted from one job to another now extolled for his smartness and business capacity, now dismissed in disgrace as an irresponsible loafer. His head was always full of immense, nebulous schemes for the enlargement and development of any business he happened to be employed in. Sometimes his suggestions interested his employers, but proved unpractical and inapplicable. Sometimes he wore out their patience or was thought to be a dangerous dreamer. Whenever he found there was no hope of his ideas being adopted, he lost interest in his work came late and left early, or disappeared for two or three days at a time without troubling himself to account for his absences. At last even those who had been cynical enough to smile over his disgrace at the temperance supper began to speak of him as a hopeless failure. And he lost the support of the feminine community, when one Sunday morning, just as the Baptist and Methodist churches were releasing their congregations, he walked up Eubal Avenue with a young woman less known to those sacred edifices than to the saloons of North Fifth Street. Undine's estimate of people had always been based on their apparent power of getting what they wanted, provided it came under the category of things she understood wanting. Success was beauty and romance to her. Yet it was at the moment when Elmer Moffat's failure was most complete and flagrant, that she suddenly felt the extent of his power. After the Yubaugh Avenue scandal he had been asked not to return to the surveyor's office to which Ben Frusk had managed to get him admitted, and on the day of his dismissal he met Undine in Main Street, at the shopping hour and sauntering up cheerfully, invited her to take a walk with him. She was about to refuse when she saw Millard Binch's mother looking at her disapprovingly from the opposite street corner. "'Oh, well, I will,' she said, and they walked the length of Main Street and out to the immature park in which it ended. She was in a mood of aimless discontent and unrest, tired of her engagement to Millard Binch, disappointed with Moffat, half ashamed of being seen with him and yet not sorry to have it known that she was independent enough to choose her companions without regard to the apex verdict. Well, I suppose you know I'm down and out," he began, and she responded virtuously, "'You must have wanted to be, or you wouldn't have behaved the way you did last Sunday.' "'Oh, shucks!' he sneered. What do I care, in a one-horse place like this? If it hadn't been for you I'd have got to move on long ago." She did not remember afterward what else he said. She recalled only the expression of a great sweeping scorn of apex, into which her own disdain of it was absorbed like a drop in the sea, and the affirmation of a soaring self-confidence that seemed to lift her on wings. All her own attempts to get what she wanted had come to nothing, but she had always attributed her lack of success to the fact that she had had no one to second her. It was strange that Elmer Moffat, a shiftless outcast from even the small world she despised, should give her, in the very moment of his downfall, the sense of being able to succeed where she had failed. It was a feeling she never had in his absence, but that his nearness always instantly revived, and he seemed nearer to her now than he had ever been. They wandered on to the edge of the vague park and sat down on a bench behind the empty bandstand. "'I went with that girl on purpose, and you know it,' he broke out abruptly. "'It makes me too damned sick to see Millard Binch going round looking as if he'd patented you.'" "'You've got no right,' she interrupted. And suddenly she was in his arms, and feeling that no one had ever kissed her before. The week that followed was a big bright blur, the wildest vividest moment of her life, and it was only eight days later that they were in the train together, apex and all her plans and promises behind them, and a bigger and brighter blur ahead into which they were plunging as the limited plunged into the sunset. Undine stood up, looking about her with vague eyes, as if she had come back from a long distance. Elmer Moffat was still in Paris. He was in reach, within telephone call. She stood hesitating a moment, then she went to her dressing room and, turning over the pages of the telephone book, looked out the number of the Nouveau Luxe. End of Chapter Forty-Three.